The Ryder Cup has become the biggest event in golf and one of the biggest sporting events in the world. But it's taken nearly 100 years to get to that stage. This week in Italy, we're heading for the 44th ever Ryder Cup as the Americans are coming across the Atlantic to see if they can beat Europe on European soil for the first time in 30 years. The Ryder Cup is the most ungolf golf event in the calendar with raucous fans getting behind their team in what is an individual sport every week except one week in September every two years and it's bloody brilliant. This is the first episode of a new series we're trying where one of us from the Unplayable podcast goes deep on a subject that we find interesting. Our idea for launching a podcast in the first place was to produce content that we would find appealing and therefore perhaps you will too. I'm a big fan of sporting history and obviously we're all big fans of golf. So this was something I really enjoyed researching and I hope you enjoy listening to. I'm going to give you everything you need to know about the Ryder Cup, what it has become and nothing that you don't. This will cover how the Ryder Cup started in the first place and I'll talk you through the best and most interesting aspects of the Ryder Cup over the years. This is a brief history of the Ryder Cup. I'm Connor, and this is Unplayable. The Ryder Cup is now the biggest event on the golfing calendar, attracting hundreds of thousands of fans on site to the golf course, either in Europe or the US, with tens of millions watching on TV around the world. But it wasn't always that way. Let's start at the beginning. I'm going to take you all the way back to the roaring 1920s, where golf was taking off as a sport in Britain, Ireland, and in the US. Golf courses were being built all across these countries and the game was becoming more and more popular every year. In 1920, a magazine, Golf Illustrated, wrote a letter to the PGA of America suggesting that a team of American of 12 American professionals should be chosen to play in the 1921 Open Championship. Um, you could imagine it was a pretty expensive and time-consuming endeavor with players having to sail across from the US over to the UK, and professional golfers were not at all wealthy in 1920. In fact, at this time, professional golfers were actually looked down upon uh, in the golfing world. It was not seen as a particularly admirable profession, and a lot of the top players at the time stayed as amateurs for that uh, very reason. The Open Championship had been around for about 60 years at this point. It was the biggest and best golf championship in the world, and no American had ever won it. So the PGA of America agreed to send 12 professionals over for the Open the following year in 1921, and they set up a, a special fund. It was called the, the British Open Championship Fund. Um, a team of players would be chosen by the PGA of America, and they would sail in time to play a little warm-up tournament at Glen Eagles prior to the Open at St. Andrews, which was 
to be held two weeks later. Um, the team of Americans sailed from New York in May 1921, but the focus of this trip was very much on the Open Championship, not necessarily this little team event that was going to be held beforehand. The, the team event was more seen as um, as a warm-up, a kind of a, a best of you guys from the US versus the best of the Brits. This warm-up match would be played at Glen Eagles on the 6th of June. It was 10 aside, and the match consisted of five foursomes in the morning, 10 singles in the afternoon, played on the King's course at, at Glen Eagles. The match was won 10.5, 4.5 by the Brits. Pretty comfortable. Um, but it was more just seen as bragging rights for the, you know, the jolly old boys of British golf, not an official match. But it did, however, plant the seed of what was to come. This event in 1921 was a success, but it was very difficult to organize given travel. And so there was no repeat of um, the event over the next few years. But then as the 1920s went on, more and more players from both sides of the Atlantic were starting to make the journey over to compete in the, the two respective Open Championships. The, the top British pros were starting to travel over for the US Open and the top Americans were beginning to come over for the British Open. Prize money for both events were increasing for the pros um, who didn't make all that much for the rest of the year. And also the pride of just winning these championships was, was starting to become a, a big factor. But 1926, a larger than usual contingent of American pros were traveling to Britain to compete in the Open Championship that year. Um, which was going to be held a couple of weeks before the, the US Open. Um, and it was announced that Walter Hagen, who pretty famous old pro, but he was the top professional player from America at the time, he was going to select a team of American players, including himself, to play a team of, of British players in a match before the Open Championship. So similar to what they had done in 1921, but it was less formal. Um, it was announced that uh, a golf enthusiast, a guy called Samuel Ryder, was to donate a cup for this competition. It was agreed that the competition would be match play, ten aside, foursomes in the first day, singles in the second. Pretty straightforward. Um, Samuel Ryder had himself and his brother had been sponsoring some British professional golf events um, for a few years, so he wasn't a particularly good golfer himself. But Mr. Ryder just loved it, and he wanted to get himself involved somehow. The Brits won very comfortably in this event in 1926, 13.5, 1.5. But the victory was just a wee bit controversial because the team had been selected by Walter Hagen instead of the PGA of America. So Samuel Ryder decided not to present the trophy in 1926, given it was arguably not the strongest possible US team. Um, and instead, the first official Ryder Cup was to be held the following year in 1927 on in u.s soil just outside of boston the first world cup 1927 it was going to be a much more formal event so they drew up what they call the Ryder cup deed of trusts which formalized the rules of the competition um and there was a proper selection process put in place by the two pgas so the pga of the us and the, the pga of britain now this very first Ryder cup was just between the us and britain no Irish players at this point, and then there were also no players from, from mainland Europe. Tournament was just over two days, foursomes and singles was the format, no four balls yet. Um, there was nine players on each side, 
and um, the matches were 36 holes. The US won this first one pretty comfortably, nine and a half, two and a half, but the Ryder Cup was officially born. The next few years, the event grew, um, but the first five stages of the Ryder Cup were all won by the home team, which is not too dissimilar to kind of how it is right now. Um, but then came a period of US dominance for a very long time. Um, little side note, Harry Bradshaw from Delgany, County Wicklow, became the, the very first Irish player to play in a Ryder Cup in 1953. An interesting little fact is that Delgany Golf Club in County Wicklow has produced more Ryder Cup players in the world than any other golf course with four Ryder Cupers from Delgany. That's just interesting to me. I'm from Wicklow, so I think that's a, a pretty cool little fact. Um, during the period after the war, after World War II, the Americans became embarrassingly dominant at the Ryder Cup. Um, between 1935 and 79, the Americans won every single Ryder Cup apart from two, with the British and Irish winning one and they tied another. Which brings me to the 1969 edition, which was really interesting. Probably the most controversial moment ever happened in golf. As I just mentioned, during this period, the Americans were dominating the Ryder Cup. Um, the game had become huge in America and the, and the US were just much stronger at the time. Um, and by the time the Americans came over to Royal Birkdale in 1969, they were going for their sixth win in a row. The British and Irish lads were pissed off and they wanted to finally beat the Americans. Over the first few days, things got very heated at this Ryder Cup. The British and Irish captain instructed his players not to help the Americans look for their golf balls, and the American captain did the same. It turned into a cracker of an event, and GB and I led by two points going into the last single session. On the last day, the final match on the course had the best player from each team against each other. You had Jack Nicholas versus Tony Jacklin. The Ryder Cup was all square when Jacqueline holed an eagle putt on 17, which meant himself and Nicholas were all square going up 18. Brian Huggett in the group ahead from GB&I holed his putt on 18, which he thought was to win the Ryder Cup, but it turned out it wasn't, and he started crying. Poor chap, it all just became a bit much for him. But whoever won the 18th hole between Nicholas and Jacqueline wins the Ryder Cup for their team huge pressure i mean you can't imagine the amount of pressure that this would have been for each player they both found the 18th green in regulation pair of boys shitting themselves i mean i'd be nearly wet myself with the stress jacqueline had his birdie put first about a 20 footer left it three feet short then nicholas loses his marbles knocks it about six feet past but then of course the great that jack nicholas is rolls it in so if Tony Jacklin misses this three-footer, Great Britain and Ireland lose the Ryder Cup again. But instead of making Jacklin hold the putt, that is definitely missable under the circumstances, Jack Nicholas concedes the putt to Tony Jacklin. He says, I don't believe you would have missed that, but I'd never give you the opportunity to do so in these circumstances. The Ryder Cup was halved and the US captain was fuming at Nicholas for conceding the putt. This was incredibly controversial, but it's aged very well. The uh, moment was known as the concession, um, very famous moment. And um, yeah, really cool for in terms of sportsmanship and all that sort of stuff. So that was the 1969 Ryder Cup. 
During the 1970s, Jack Nicholas stepped in and said something had to change because of the US dominance. He suggested that perhaps it would be a good idea to start including the rest of Europe on the Ryder Cup team. And the Ryder Cup of what we know today was born. The first Ryder Cup to include mainland Europe was in 1979 and it was on US soil. The event was held at the Greenbrier in West Virginia and included two players from mainland Europe, a guy called Antonio Garrido and then Seve Ballesteros. The Americans won 17-11 and although they would continue to win the next few, it was clear that the event had become different. The European Tour had just been set up in 1972 and Europe were just starting to produce better players that were almost at the level of the Americans. Europe literally came within inches of having the Ryder Cup in 1983 on US soil, where the last match on the course was Lanny Watkins versus Spain's Jose Maria Canizares. Walking down 18, Canizares was one up and he only needed a half or better to draw the Ryder Cup 14 all. The 18th was a par five dog leg into the wind and Watkins was 60 yards short of the green in two and he stuck his third shot to within a foot of the hole to have his match and snatch the win for the Yanks, 14 and a half, 13 and a half. But the Ryder Cup was starting to become a real contest with mainland Europe being involved. Then finally, the victory came for Europe at the Belfry in 1985 where Europe won 16 and a half, 11 and a half. And then in 1987, the Europeans won on US soil for the very first time. There's this famous clip of uh, Jose Maria Alazabal doing a little jig on the 18th green after he and Seve formed one of the most famous Ryder Cup partnerships ever. During the singles of that Ryder Cup in 1987, another Delgany man, Eamon Darcy, defeated Ben Crenshaw one up after a bit of a roller coaster match. Darcy went two up after six holes and Ben Crenshaw, known as Gentle Ben at the time, snapped his putter in disgust. Um, he had to put out the remainder of his match with a sand wedge. So not so Gentle Ben, more like a bleeding psycho. The 1989 Ryder Cup ended as a draw for only the second time ever. This Ryder Cup featured the largest tented village at any sporting event in Great Britain at the time. There was 226 structures covering 350,000 square feet were built to cater for the enormous fans. Um, the Ryder Cup at this point was just becoming big. Then along came 1991, which was one of the most famous Ryder Cups ever. It became known as the War on the Shore in Kiowa Island, where Bernard Langer famously missed a five-footer on 18 in his singles match, which gave the Americans the Ryder Cup. Langer claims that for that putt, there was a spike mark on his line, but soon after he started putting with a belly putter, emotional damage clearly set in. As a man who suffered with the putting yips, I can definitely sympathize with Langer. But this Ryder Cup was known as the war on the shore for a reason. It was heated. At the start of the week, some American players showed up wearing camouflage as if they were in the fucking army. The bad blood uh, at Keogh Island escalated on the Friday morning when, uh, in a foursomes match, Seve Ballesteros and his partner, Jose Maria Lazabal, were playing against Paul Azinger and Chip Beck. The European lads, Seve and uh, Olazabal, noticed that the Americans had changed their ball on the 7T, so like changed to a different type of golf ball. This is in violation of what's called the one ball rule in competition for professional golf. 
So Seve accused his opponents, Azinger and Chip Beck, of doing this at least three times since the start of the match. Azinger flatly denied the accusation, but then the Schmiegel that he is, Azinger, he admitted to doing it once it became apparent that the that the Americans were not going to be called up on the violation. Uh, this would or should have been a penalty of a loss of hole, but uh, it, it just didn't. The referee didn't call him out in it. So Azinger admitted to switching their golf ball after all this, which is just cheating. Like, you can't do it. This incident was one of many accusations of the U.S. side of repeated gamesmanship and bad sportsmanship for the rest of the matches. You know um, Azinger from his TV commentary, but I'll always think of him as a bit of a bollocks after this incident at the 91 Ryder Cup. On the morning of the Saturday foursomes that year, between Seve and Ali, uh, Ali Azabal again, they were playing Raymond Floyd and Fred Couples. Ballesteros developed a small cough, we'll say, after coincidentally coughing during swings made by the US team on the first two holes. Raymond Floyd obviously copped on to what Seve was doing, and he went up to him with a warning to say, if you don't stop, we're going to play fire with fire and start doing the same. Um, even the fans were getting in on it at this Ryder Cup. It was just raucous. The final and deciding match of that Ryder Cup, this was so tight, but it was between, uh, this final match was between Bernard Langer, Bernard Langer and Hale Irwin. The Langer was two down with four holes to go. Langer won the 15th and 17th holes to take the match down the last hole in clearly what was a very nervy affair. Um, Irwin hit his drive on the 18th into the dunes like it was in in bad shape but then somehow received what we'd call a rather fortuitous bounce back into play after hitting someone in the crowd and onto the fairway so I mean whether someone from the crowd actually kicked it out or it was genuine I don't know today that's a mystery but the uh, American Hale Irwin went on to make a five and then Langer missed that famous putt that would have drawn the, the scores level and then Europe would have retained the trophy if Langer had a hold that putt. But instead, Langer's missed putt meant both players got the half for their respective teams and then America won 14.5, at Kiowa Island, the war on the shore. Um, in my opinion, the war on the shore was probably the real spark uh, for turning the Ryder Cup into what it is today. I mean, that sort of controversy and um, just the whole nature of, of that event was, I mean, I think it's class. But yeah, it, it definitely took the Ryder Cup up a notch or two. And then the next three Ryder Cups were really tight. The US won 15-13 in 93 at the Belfry. Europe won 14 and a half, 13 and a half in 95 at, at Oak Hill. And then Europe won again by the same score at Valderrama in 97, which happened to be the first Ryder Cup to be held in mainland Europe, which Seve captain. Um, and then came Brookline in 99. And this was another cracker of an event. So Brookline, you probably remember at the country club in Boston where Matt Fitzpatrick won his US Open, I think a, a year or two ago. Um, in the build-up to that Ryder Cup, American player Payne Stewart said, we're so far ahead of these guys that they should be caddying for us. Then Europe went out 
dominated the first two days, leading 10-6 going into the singles. But in the press conference on the Saturday night, US captain, not so gentle Ben, who I mentioned previously, said famously, there's a clip of it that you can Google. He says, I'm going to leave you all with one thought and then I'm going to leave. I'm a big believer in fate. I've got a funny feeling about this. That's all I'm going to tell you. And then the next day was absolute madness. I'll always remember Harrington playing in his first Ryder Cup ever, fist pumping on the 18th green as he lagged up a putt to secure his win in the singles. But the tide was turning the way of the Americans that Sunday. The Americans won the first six matches in a row and it was just mayhem. So Justin Leonard produced one of the most famous moments in Ryder Cup history with his match all square against uh, Jose Maria Lazabal. Leonard holed a 45-foot birdie put on the 17th green. Himself and his teammates went nuts. They started running all over the green. Even the wives of some of the US players invaded the green, legging it around the place, standing all over Ollie's line before he hit his putt. Ollie then missed his birdie putt to leave Leonard one up with one hole to play, assuring him of half a point and guaranteeing uh, the US victory for the Ryder Cup. But the, the behavior of both the US spectators and the US team was heavily criticized by both American and European media. The US spectators heckled and abused players, especially Monty, who was repeatedly called a fat bastard and he was called Mrs. Doubtfire. Um, Monty was getting fans kicked off the grounds left, right and centre for the abuse he was getting. Um, there was also allegations made regarding cheating on the part of course marshals. The whole event was just like fever pitch, you know. Um, the incident between Justin Leonard and Olazabal, that one where um, Leonard and the US team went nuts, was um, it was viewed generally as appalling sportsmanship. So a veteran broadcaster at the time, a guy called Alistair Cook, described the last day of the tournament as a date that will live in infamy. He called it the arrival of the golf hooligan. Like that Ryder Cup in 99 was like just madness. Um, and to be fair, I would love it. I think that's great. It probably boiled over. Um, and then the next few Ryder Cups were just a bit less dramatic. So the 2002 Ryder Cup at the Belfry um, was famous for Paul McGinley holding the, the Ryder Cup before he, he jumped into the lake just off the 18th green. Um, the Ryder Cup had been postponed uh, a year due to 9-11, which happened just days before the Ryder Cup was supposed to start in 2001. So out of respect, both teams, well, the Ryder Cup was postponed a year, but also both teams that were to play in 2011 remained the same for the following year. So the same lineups that had qualified for 2001, they kept them for, for the Ryder Cup in 2002. Europe won that one reasonably comfortably, 15 and a half, 12 and a half. And then Europe won the next two Ryder Cups um, in 2004 at Oakland Hills. That was famous for how bad Phil and Tiger were as pairings. Given they were the two best players in the world at the time, um, they were paired together by the, the US captain, Hal Sutton, 
he obviously looked at it and said, well, these are number one and two in the world. Uh, so they should probably beat anyone. But they just weren't mates. They kind of hated each other at the time and they didn't play well together at all. They didn't gel. They got battered in every single match that they played together. Then, so Europe won that Ryder Cup, I think 18 and a half, nine and a half. It was a bit of a hammering on US soil. 2006 was the first Ryder Cup ever to be held in Ireland at the K Club. But I pretty underwhelming Ryder Cup. Europeans hammered the US again, same score, 18 and a half, nine and a half. Um, yeah, bit of a cool as it was to be on in Ireland, bit of a forgettable Ryder Cup. 2008, the Americans won at Valhalla. Anthony Kim famously hammered Sergio uh, on the singles and he was so in the zone that he didn't realise he'd won and he, he just walked to the next tee before having to come back and shake Sergio's hand. Um, yeah, this was for Americans' first win and since since 99. But um, again, I wouldn't say a particularly memorable Royal Cup. Then 2010 was a cracker. Celtic Manor. Um, the weather was awful for the week. It had to be finished on the Monday. Gray McDell beat Hunter Mahan uh, on the 17th to secure the trophy for Europe. Hunter, Ma well, McDell made an unbelievable birdie on the 16th. Very famous clip of him with his arms in the air after holding that putt. And then uh, it was all down to their match. And Mahan um, had a chip from just short of the 17th green long par three. He duffed the chip and that gave McDell the win. Um pretty pretty lonely place to be if you're Hunter Mayhan in that type of scenario. The whole world cup coming down to you and and then you duff the chip to to lose it for your team. I think that affected him pretty badly actually um in the years after. But twenty ten was famously Gray McDale's year all round. He he won the US Open that year. He took down Tiger at his own event in California and then obviously secured that winning point for Europe at the Ryder Cup. But then came Medina. 2012 probably the most famous Ryder Cup of them all where it was the reverse of Brookline in 99 so Europe were 10-6 down heading into the singles where they famously came back to win 14 and a half 13 and a half I mean there's so many storylines that week from Poulter and Rory birdieing the last five holes of their four ball match on the Saturday evening which um you know, there's very little doubt that momentum generated by Poulter's run that Saturday inspired Europe to mount a comeback the following day. The Ryder Cup is definitely a momentum tournament where emotions are just higher than at normal tournaments. Therefore, we see dramatic swings in momentum in, in either direction. Um, of course, another storyline that week was Rory nearly missing his tea time that Sunday morning after he apparently saw the times for... The Sunday singles on the Saturday night, but he got the time zones wrong. Uh, it was on in Chicago, and I think he was looking at like Eastern time or something like that on the telly. But anyway, barely made it to the course on time for his match. Funnily enough, it was Rory's, it was his future wife, Erica Stahl, who called into his hotel room to collect him and bring him to the golf course that Sunday morning. I mean, called into his hotel room. Maybe she was already there, who knows? <laughs> but Rory rocked up to the first tee after getting a police escort to the golf course and then dispatched of Keegan Bradley in the singles match, which was pretty impressive. Obviously, he could have been rattled, but Rory was world number one at the time. And um, yeah, himself and the rest of the Europeans 
had an unbelievable comeback in Medina. I'm, I'm sure you've seen the, the footage of it. Very cool. Martin Keimer hold the winning putt while captain Jose Maria Elizabeth looks up to heaven in tears uh, with the thought of his good friend Seve having died um, quite soon before that tournament. This was dubbed the miracle at Medina. Now, I'm conscious that the Ryder Cups that follow Medina are more recent in the memory of, of you, the listener. So I, I'll try not to labor the points. I'll just give you what you need to know. Um, the 2014 Ryder Cup at Glen Eagles was famous for Paul McGinley's incredible stewardship, arguably the greatest ever captain of the Ryder Cup and, uh, at that event. Um, his organization and, and preparation set the standard for what a Ryder Cup captain should really do. I mean, he brought in Alex Ferguson to give a speech to the um, European team beforehand. He did loads of really cool stuff in the build-up to that Ryder Cup to just get the Europeans in the right frame of mind. And they, um, they yeah, again, wouldn't say it was a particularly memorable Ryder Cup 2014, just a, a dominant European one. Um, but famously, Phil Mickelson threw his captain, Tom Watson under the bus for being such a poor captain on the back of this event. Since 2002, Europe kept coming into Ryder Cups with teams that were on paper weaker than the US, but because of their chemistry, they just kept beating what were, you know, supposedly stronger American teams. Um, the On the back of that 2014 Ryder Cup, the, U, the US Ryder Cup organization then decided to set up what they called a task force to help the US team catch up after a long period of, of US or sorry of European dominance. Um the thoughts at the time were that the the US team were all great players, uh, ranked well and did well individual uh, in individual events, but they were such individuals that when the Ryder Cup rocked around, they just couldn't gel as a team. This task force worked very well. Um at the following Ryder Cup in 2016, it was won by by the Americans. Um, and they've started to put more of an emphasis on creating a team bond. Now, arguably, this is a little bit forced from the Americans, kind of getting all of them to, to see in Pali Pali, but it does also seem to have worked. Um, the last three Ryder Cups have all been won by the team on home soil. The home team obviously has the crowd behind them, uh, which counts for a lot. But they can also set up the golf course in a way that's more suited to, to their team. The Golf National in Paris in 2018 was, was a very good example of this. It was famously set up to be narrow off the tee, high rough. They even pushed the crowd back a few yards so that they wouldn't trample down this rough. Um, they did this because it obviously favoured the Europeans because they weren't as long as the Americans uh, off the tee, but they were more accurate off the tee. So we live in an age now where we have more and more data. So home teams have incredible advantages um, as they can look at the, the stats of their respective teams and then they can set up the golf courses in a way that they're more suited to their team like Europe did in um, Le Golf National, and the Americans have done the same. So the last Ryder Cup was on uh, at Whistling Straits in Wisconsin. Um, it was pretty bad for the, for the Europeans, a pretty dark day. None of them performed particularly well. The the uh, the US team were just so much better than the Europeans, um, both on paper, 
uh, via the rankings. But also their form was just nowhere near the Americans. Famously, Rory gave that interview uh, where he was in tears. And um, yeah, there was just not that not too many highlights from European perspective the last time around. Um, which brings us to Marco Simone in Rome for this year's World Cup. At the time of recording this, it's it's this week upcoming. Um, and look, it's over a few months ago or at the end of the last World Cup, it looked like the Americans were going to have a very long period of dominance. They were so good and the Europeans seemed to have fallen way behind but now as the week is on it doesn't seem that way it seems like it, it could be a little bit more even I'm not going to do any predictions because who knows what way it could play out it could go in either direction but what is clear to me from doing this research and looking back on these events is that the Ryder Cup is special it's far bigger than any other golf event on the calendar including the, the President's Cup I'm buzzing for Marco Simone I hope we see a little bit of controversy like the 91 war on the shore or 99 at brookline that would be great a bit of tension between the teams and um, it'd be cool if we saw some sort of comeback like medina of some sort um, and look i hope it's a tight affair but regardless of what happens i'm going to enjoy it i hope you do too i really enjoyed making this little episode um hope you enjoyed it too um, and if it's well received, we'll, we'll do a few more like it for, for different events. Um, but thank you. Enjoy the Ryder Cup this week and we'll speak soon.